0: Hello and welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite podcast brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. My name is Carl, and I'm joined by Alex from the podcast team and on today's episode we are delighted to welcome Jordan Welsh and we're going to have a little bit of a chat about our experiences studying in the field of Pre-Raphaelitism so far and where we think we're going in the future. So over to Jordan, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work?
1: Uh, yeah, um, my name uh, is Jordan. I'm a third and possibly final year um, PhD student um, at the University of Essex. Um, and I feel like I'm kind of cheating a little bit because my re- my research is Romanticism and, and Victorians kind of together. And I look at the poetry of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, Christine Rossetti um, and Gerard Manny Hopkins. And I look at how they portray the idea of place and space and, and nature and the natural world and how that kind of fits into a, a kind of religious context. So how it's religion seen in, in the natural environment. And so, yeah, that's what I kind of do um, as a kind of researchy piece.
0: So, that sounds really interesting. I've loads to talk about on that, Jordan. Um, Alex, could you could you tell us a little bit about your research so far?
2: So I'm the complete opposite to Jordan in the sense that I'm very new to the whole thing. I'm a first year, well, technically half a year PhD student, and I specialise in looking at the evolving network established between prayer afloat women, or at least women that we... Um, tend to brand as Pre-Raphaelite. So, I've been looking at this diachronic study, this evolution of this network, and how it, it came into fruition in the 1840s to how it evolved and adapted and changed all the way going through to the, around the 1870s. Some of the women that I do look at include uh, Rebecca Solomon, Anna Mary Howitt, Barbara Bodichon, Bessie Parks, and all of the people who more or less established this as in art. Uh, network that not only was a network formed but in terms of friendships and genuine companionship but it also concerned political endeavors and eventually the enfranchisement of women in wider Victorian culture as well so it was a really incredible network and I'm looking into how that conversation has shifted and changed like through time so that's me in a nutshell
0: so I should tell you a little bit about my research, I suppose. Um, I'm a, I'm in between your two extremes in that I, I'm a third-year part-time PhD student at Birmingham City University. Um, I'm studying Swinburne's poems and ballads, but I'm studying it alongside the Victorian Gothic. And I'm arguing that pre-Raphaelitism and Swinburne in particular shared a number of the processes uh, with Victorian Gothic literature, such as undecidability in particular, uh, transgression, and this sort of fragmented or fractured approach that borrows across historical time periods. I'm making the argument that Swinburne deliberately situates characters and experiences in between what we might assume are sort of binary situations or responses, such as the living and the dead, or male and female. I think Swinburne, I'm giving him a new lease of life by breathing a bit of Victorian Gothic into him. (laughs) I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk a little bit about our experiences studying towards a PhD so far. Um, Jordan, how have you found the process? Because I'm aware that all three of us are in a particularly strange situation, having done it in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I, I mean it, it has been a, a, a real I mean I wouldn't even call it a steep learning curve it's, it's practically you know every bend's on fire I think is how it sometimes feel when you know it, it's it's you know it walking complete darkness yeah it has been really strange I think when I started um as a, as a full-time PhD student it, it well, I think we had about four months of normality and then COVID kind of kicked in and it, it really it's really had to kind of force a change of approach for everything, how I work, what the actual research is like, um, how I access materials. I think, you know, I think all of us doing a PhD at the moment have had have got a very unique experience as a result. And, you know, hopefully we come out quite strong before it, the experiences and the hurdles we've had to overcome in the process. So I'm kind of trying to seize on that kind of positive um side of it all and try to sort of say well actually you know we, we're learning a lot and we're getting a lot of skills out of this that perhaps we we wouldn't have got in in, in previous years but i think the process feels a bit harder but sometimes when you do get those successes they feel a lot more successful in in a kind of way it's a success that's more successful um which seems really strange but it you you kind of feel like you know those moments really do need celebrating that you've overcome those 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 kind of hurdles so yeah it's 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 about adaptability and I think even outside outside of a pandemic there is an element of adaptability that no one teaches you how to do a PhD and you you've got to kind of go out and find what system works best for you and I think it's quite strange experience when people go here's some books go off and read them read these articles and you're kind of like well what am i supposed to do with the information how do i kind of digest it what should i be reading and i think that independence element is is really the kind of culture shock that occurs when you're doing a phd but no one really tells you how to deal with that i think you you gradually learn what works for you and what's kind of the best practice for you in, in kind of how you do that and it, it comes eventually you know it does come and and actually when you kind of hit your stride um you really do start to thrive in that in that process but nothing can prepare you until you're actually in that situation
0: so that's interesting so you, you talk about this being a, a, a learned process of adaptability alex how are you finding that early on in the career i i I know for me i can see coming now i'm starting to find my routine and find my feet and it's it's taken a good couple of years to get there How, how does it feel almost entering that process
2: yeah i was gonna say i completely agree with everything that jordan has just said i'm in the midst of the organized chaos right now in the sense that i have no idea what i'm doing and i'm finding it very difficult at the moment to accept the fact that that is okay that's the part of the process to not know what you're doing so just a couple of years before my PhD I've come from full-time teaching background so I'm so used to consistent deadlines and um, constant marking and routine and um, you know being forced to meet the like you know follow this routine that the kids have to follow And meeting deadlines like I said and you know all of the work that comes with being a teacher and then September just gone it went from five days a week to oh two days a week where I was still managing some of the teaching for the A-level students but I I find it really really difficult um, where I feel like I'm sitting there and not actually using the time to its full potential or to its full capacity where I'm sitting there thinking should I be doing something? Should I be doing something else? Should I be doing something other than reading? Should I be writing a certain amount of words by this, by this uh, time, by this month? So I found it really difficult in the sense to, to, to fully understand the whole process of it. Um, I'm, I'm getting there. I feel like I'm improving um, and I feel like I'm slowing down and telling myself to calm down a little bit and not get too overwhelmed with the whole process. Um, but the initial months that came after starting the PhD, I found it really, really difficult. I still think that I'm not quite there yet, and I feel like it won't be until I would say later on this year when I really fully establish myself. Especially as I'm in the process of starting my first chapter now. But yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I'll get there. But it, it has been difficult, and I think Jordan, you touched on it. Earlier as well, you talked about how there isn't, it's never really said, there is never really this conversation surrounding PhD students in any field and any support that they get with regards to the whole experience of maybe feeling isolated or independent study. Um, So I think talks talks like this and a lot of the efforts that Jordan has made um, in his own time, I think, has been really useful for PhD students.
0: Part of my experience has, has been finding the joy in what I'm studying. I often find that coming home, like, like you, Alex, I work, um, I work in a school on uh, a full-time basis. But coming home and actually having something to study and something to put my aspirations and my hopes on, I, I find that quite a hopeful and quite a joyful process it's something that gives me a lot of pleasure uh do you do you still get that same pleasure Jordan coming to the end of the journey or is it or is it do you see it more of an ordeal now
1: tying the ends up I think I I describe it I think as quite a tempestuous relationship and sometimes we're in love and sometimes we're not um i i think that's kind of that's the best way to kind of do it there's 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 real high moments where i think it's the best piece of work i've ever done and you know kind of sitting there a bit probably a bit cocky sometimes thinking well actually, this is really going to contribute something people might like this and there's other days where i think this is just drivel and no one's going to read this and no one's going to be interested and this will fail so i think you you get those moments i think that's I find that sometimes it's because where, particularly where I've been working on on a on a certain chapter or a certain element for so long, and I think where you've got so embedded in it it's hard to see the wood for the trees, and I find that pulling out and maybe starting a different section of that particular chapter or or refocusing it or starting the new chapter entirely, you know different prep work, and just clearing your mind, I think that was that was really, really helpful. I think I spent a lot of my first year, two years solely working on the romantic side of it um as, as obviously because my project kind of works over the two and I think by the end of it I was really a little bit bored with romanticism because I've been doing so much work and I thought well, I wanted the, the Rossetti stuff and I wanted the Hopkins stuff um and actually that was quite a breath of fresh air to go and do that and I'm excited to go back to the the, the, the Coleridge thing and and actually look at that in more detail uh, and revisit what I've already written but yeah you do kind of go for these these kind of peaks and valleys of, of kind of what's going on and I think that's to be expected because you do get if you if you didn't care about what you're writing then I, I you probably should be doing a PhD you are passionate about that particular area that particular field you know you found a niche you found an area that really means something to you and sometimes you go down there and it's real hard slog and it's it's, it's quite difficult lots of reading to do lots of kind of unpicking of ideas and concepts and 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 even the the pre-raphaelites just working out how people are connected and, and what the relationships are and that can be quite confusing in itself to kind of map what's going on there um and i think when you do that it's you kind of come out at the end of it and feel like you've been in a boxing ring you're so exhausted by the end of it and kind of think gosh what am i what am i doing but when they when those payoffs happen um, I think you you do really enjoy that 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 kind of success. And you think, yeah, this actually just is doing well. So yeah, you will go through the highs and lows and 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 that's to be expected. And I think that that just shows you that you you care about what you're doing. Um and so don't be disheartened by by kind of feeling a bit out of love with it because you will fall back in love with it eventually.
0: Is is that something you've noticed, Alex? Um, do you, do you get a joy out of mapping the Connectivity of the Pre-Raphaelites.
2: Well, I wish I could show you right now, um, because obviously this podcast is it audio only, and um, because obviously you two can see this, but I have, you know, like what detectives have when they're trying to find the criminal um, for like a <laughs> certain crime, like it looks like a bit like a spider web with all the strings. <laughs> That's currently one whole wall in my room. <laughs> i'm not even joking i've got um i've got post-it notes everywhere i've got printed up suspected pictures or portraits of each woman i've got dates knocking around um i've got like loads of different highlighters going on so it looks like a little bit of a psychedelic rave, really going on <laughs> in my room right now um but that is actually the, the really exciting bit When you come across something where, say someone has written something about one of the women um, and then, oh, in a certain year, this woman did this. And then I look at another piece of work or say an exhibition catalogue and I go, hold the phone. That happened at the same time. These two women were in the same place at the same time. That is so exciting because it's like, oh my God, this is where I come in. And this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to um, you know, establish the connections that, were made between these women that haven't necessarily been looked at in depth over the past couple of years or so um so every single time i get something like that it's incredibly rewarding but on the side of that you also get those times where your efforts are fruitless um you're endlessly searching in archives and some archival visits say um going across the country, when you do attend those archives and you don't find anything that you necessarily need or will find useful, that can be a real blow and and a very depressing ride home. But that that just comes with the trials and tribulations of research. Some days you'll have a really successful day and have a breakthrough and a eureka moment, and then some days you'll just have nothing. So, yeah, there's definitely a Marmite relationship with this research right now that sometimes I love it. Some days I hate it. Some days I want to break up with it. Some days I want. Some days I want to stay in a relationship with it. Um. So yeah, it's almost like the way that we're describing our PhDs, it's almost like they're real people, like yeah. they are individuals that we are in some kind of relationship with.
0: I, I think there's there's something in that, Alex. I think Noreen, you, you do have, you do have a definite relationship with your work it's and it's a relationship you have to work on you have to grow I think it starts with that initial moment of passion and love and that (laughs) love at first sight but it has awkward moments like any long-term relationship
1: I think (laughs) we soon realize that neither of us are perfect and we've all got to kind of work (laughs) on ourselves and try and find out what's going on um, but and it's a, really, it's a really good metaphor. I think I just find that with the PhD, I, I talk in metaphors all the time. I talk about puzzle pieces, and you know, and and you know these these weird kind of elements, you know, making those connections and and and, and what. But I do like Alex's idea of having you know almost like the mug of like Jane Morris and
0: fingerprints <laughs>
1: and things all on the wall, which I think. To an outsider, a non-pre-Raphaelite looking, go, what on earth is going on? But to us, that's normal. Like, I've got whiteboards <laughs> and things everywhere and pictures and diagrams and, and like chronological orders of like where was someone at this particular date. And, and And I think what Alex was saying is so true, that those moments where you're not just regurgitating somebody else's knowledge, you suddenly find something that no one seems to have done before. And when you make those connections, that is so exciting because that's when you as a PhD student feel like you are actually making a contribution at last. Like this is your knowledge. This is your contribution to that field. And you found that moment where this person was in the same location as that person and therefore we can kind of assume or apply that they were at the same event or that they were corresponding together and things like that and that's really exciting when that happens and that kind of really makes you go yeah this is this is worth doing
2: but Mm. they're always
1: kind of sometimes at the beginning they're quite few and far between because you've got to have that knowledge you've got to have that context you've got to look at what other people have written the other scholarship and once you kind of ground yourself that's when you can kind of grow it's a flower metaphor now you can kind of grow into your own little garden and you can find out what works for you you know, are you a rose and are you a are you a tulip or whatever but you can kind of work out what, what works best for you and then from there that's when the kind of fun starts because you can kind of start to add the colour and everything else that kind of makes your piece special um and that's always quite fun
2: you can definitely tell that we're English students or at least come from some kind of English department background.
0: (laughs) Well, I I think it's interesting, Alex, because I I was going to say, I I think all three of us are are biased towards the pre-Raphaelites, clearly. But there's a particular benefit in studying pre-Raphaelitism because it is so naturally interdisciplinary. So it's really difficult to separate the English element to it from, say, the art history but I I think it offers so many other sort of cross-disciplinary connections. Um, There's work going on now, Christina Rossetti in music. So for music students, there are opportunities there. Um, We're all naturally engaged in history as a discipline as well because of what we study. Could you think of any other particularly interdisciplinary elements that Pre-Raphaelitism lends itself to?
2: Well, I know a couple of PhD students who study Victorian clothing, like Pre-Raphaelite clothing, in some uh, Pre-Raphaelite women, for example, and looking at why did they choose that particular item of clothing to wear for that portrait. um, it's, It's almost like it's some kind of visual social commentary just by wearing a particular garment of clothing. Um, there's also a lot of work on embroidery and sculpting as well. So, it, like, like you said, it's very much like it, it's opened and expanded itself to not just art history, not just general history or literature or analysis of literature or critical theory or anything like that. It's also so many different art mediums. And I think that's what the pre raphaelite Society is all about as well it's not just fixed on sticking to the traditional aspects of research but it's very practical too um, and I think you can definitely tell that especially with the spring newsletter as I was reading um yesterday as it came out there's so many fascinating projects um and just like innovative ideas that are coming into fruition uh, with the Career societies Society that aren't necessarily art history or history, there's so much more.
0: Do you think there's an element of it being well, yes. still being a living tradition in, in, in some sense? The, the spring newsletter, of course, had the competition winners in it. So there are still poets working in this mode and there are still artists working with similar themes and imagery.
2: Yeah, I think what I love about the fact that uh, people are still recreating tradition, if you will, is because it's stressing the importance and significance of a movement such as pre-Raphaelitism and the impact that it has in our modern society as well. I know it sounds cliche, but the traditions that come with pre-Raphaelitism, sometimes it's best to stick to those traditions or to recreate those traditions for it to be better appreciated in the modern day. And I I just think that Pre-Raphaelitism in general is such an, especially with the the historical context that goes with the movement, I think it's so applicable to today's society. I mean, take the Pre-Raphaelite exhibition in 2020, um, the Pre-Raphaelite Sisters exhibition, that was groundbreaking. And one of the more popular exhibitions that the MPG had ever had. And half of the public, I imagine, had never really heard of any of these women before, but they found it so accessible modern day conversation about women being brought to the forefront of conversation um, so you can see how pre raphaelitism and the pre raphaelite society contributes so much towards modern day um, and is recreated because people love it so much people love the idea of pre raphaelitism so much people love the movement and what it stands for um, and the artistic ideals that come with it I think it does open, it, it opens a lot of windows
0: into cultural theory, sort of contemporary critical theory that perhaps might not have been as explored in pre-Raphaelitism as possibly they should have been. And Jordan, some, a lot of your work lends itself well to green movements and eco, ecological theory. Could you talk a little yeah. bit more about that? I, I, it's an area I'd know little about.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, this is I mean, this is the thing about literature, you know, we kind of think about literature being as, as kind of poetry and, 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 and stories and things like that. But there's, there's obviously a lot of different movements and concepts and theories within that. You know, we talk about literary theory and, and one of those, you know, they're, they're changing all the time. There's new ones being added. You know, we're talking about feminist theory, which really didn't kind of exist as a, as a kind of literary concept before the kind of 1970s, 1980s or so. So it was kind of a, a relatively new concept to start, so really putting the emphasis on on, on kind of portrayals of femininity and how women are portrayed and, and kind of what that, that kind of lends itself to. And these kind of n- concepts are always being added to. And there is one that's called um, eco-criticism or, or eco-writing. And, and that looks at, that's kind of like a, from sort of like the 1990s, it's starting to develop. And again, it's this growing field that looks at how, nature and and the environment and ecology is kind of portrayed within art within literature um is it portrayed in a positive light negative light what does it kind of give us in terms of the attitude of people within that that time period so obviously we look at people like the romantics they're kind of people who are interested in preserving and and conserving you know we want to protect the environment because the environment is is precious and it, it obviously lends itself and people like wordsworth look at nature as, as having a kind of spirituality within it. I know it's a calming element to it. And I think because of, obviously with, with COVID and things, a lot of us have kind of developed a, a new attachment to the outside world because it's kind of, when we were shut indoors and not allowed out, suddenly people were exploring the environment and exploring nature. And we were kind of seeing the benefit of, it's good for your health. And, and it has these kind of of of, of kind of groundbreaking elements that make you feel good. It's good for well being. And I think that's what eco-criticism kind of taps into. So it kind of looks at the different art forms, but I think there's also a kind of scientific element to it as well, about why do we respond to nature um, in a particular way? What compels us to paint, paint paintings of, of, of kind of the natural landscape and, and you know, Ophelia in the lake, but the emphasis on the trees and, and, you know, the laurel leaves and the ivy and the roses and the pomegranates, you know, why are we so interested in that? And obviously we see that in, in pre-Raphaelite art, you know, these kind of subtle touches that that link in the idea of nature and the importance of nature, Adam and Eve in, in you know, in the Garden of Eden, things like that. Why is that so important in terms of a, a real iconic piece of imagery and going back to what Alex was saying there as well is is, when we're talking about why pre-Raphaelitism is kind of so important we don't realize actually just how much of a kind of cultural mainstream it is at times you know we look at you go into those of different shops you will find William Morris prints on bottles on on you know as I've got in my bottle here which obviously you can't see for listening on the, on the podcast but and and you know you can find it on dresses you can find it on napkins and and you know hand towels and 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 what have you people recognize that image of Ophelia in in the lake that's quite an iconic iconic image and the idea of the pomegranates and and you know the, the kind of auburn-haired kind of figures within the paintings as well by sort of Dante, Gabriel, Rossetti and the like, they're very iconic. People might not see that they're pre pre-rapper-like, but people recognise those images. And when you start to kind of fit them together, people go, actually, yeah, I have seen this before and I, ha- I do kind of recognise the kind of main points. So I think that sometimes we just don't realise how exposed we have been and kind of making those connections, maybe us more so as PhD students, we kind of realised a bit more about what is capable and where those kind of connections fit in whether that's in architecture whether that's in um, you know dress design as, as alex was saying there's so much kind of interdisciplinariness that kind of fits it all in and and, and makes it exciting so we're not all kind of treading on each other's feet which is mm-hmm. quite nice As kind of pre raphaelite you know scholars researchers we're not all doing the same thing we're linked by kind of one umbrella term but we're all doing very different, very niche areas, which is quite exciting to kind of hear what everyone's doing.
2: Just to add to what um, you said about the William Morris water bottle as well. Um, it's a bit of a tangent, but I went uh, on my Christmas break up to Northumberland and there was a National Trust store and they were selling William Morris umbrellas, William Morris um, aprons, William Morris napkins and I bet half the people who walked into that store probably never fully or truly appreciated who had done it or where that pattern had come from but but really like that pattern, I mean it's a very very popular pattern is it, well William Morris designs are very popular in itself and there are a lot of people who are using it as wallpaper um, because I think that design is very in at the moment I'm not sure but I know a lot of people enjoy uh, William Morris prints um, yeah, it's just, it's so, pre or the, like you said, the massive umbrella term of that is so culturally significant, and I think a lot of people don't realise it, or fully appreciate the fact that it is there, and it's ever-present, and it has been, so, you know, it's been a popular trend ever since 1848 in their first exhibition, and it continues to do so, and I think that's so much to say of as how significant and impressive it is as a cultural and artistic movement, I
0: think. I think you're both absolutely spot on. I think one of the things that's come out of my studies is the level of impact pre-Raphaelitism has had on shaping the later Victorian thoughts and how that bled into sort of modernism and postmodernism and actually quite the change the pre-Raphaelites made to the world and how we look at and how we view art and how we relate to commodities and things and objects and ideas. There's certainly more at play with pre-Raphaelitism, I think, than just fancy prints and fancy pictures, which perhaps it's our our job as researchers to just dig under and just expose the the importance of what the pre-Raphaelites have done and how they have shaped the modern world, which I think, maybe brings me on to the final question of where we think pre-Raphaelitism is going where do we see it in 10-20 years
1: I mean dropping a real hard question to uh, to kind of end on there I think what I'm what I'm really excited about is, is this idea that where we were talking about you know, the, the different literary theories that are coming up. And what that really gets us to do is, is kind of reconsider the canon, reconsider actually what is being taught. And I think with same with Romanticism, with, with the pre-Raphaelites, there's this kind of main figures, the kind of poster boys of, of that. And we kind of think of, you know, um, Jean Everett Millet and, and um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti and the like, we kind of think of them as the kind of iconic figures. But when you start to dig down and, and you look at people like what, what Jan Marsh has done with the Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood and, and kind of realise there's, there's lots more people involved. And, and kind of this shift towards looking more at that, the women within the movement, also looking at kind of the minority groups within the movement. And I think what we're starting to see now is we're kind of broadening out what our definition of pre-Raphaelitism is. And, and that's really exciting to start looking at perhaps the lesser known figures and kind of helping them to raise their profile, whether that is Elizabeth Siddle being seen as a poet in her own right and not just simply as the wife and the model of, of, of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And I think that's really exciting to kind of have that new approach to what is you know, a, a kind of well-known movement, we've been saying, but actually finding new things to say about it. And this seems to be coming through all the time that we're, we're looking at new discovered letters and new discovered poems and kind of putting this new emphasis on on kind of what people are doing and and where they were and 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 kind of looking at the lesser known figures and i think that's really exciting because it it means that we're constantly kind of making anew what it means to be a pre-raphaelite because we're kind of showing the the other people involved and their influence and what they kind of meant to that movement even though they might have not been the mainstream the main kind of post figures they were still crucial to what that movement meant
2: yeah i could definitely agree with that um and jordan that crucial question what is now and i think that's where the movement i believe is heading i think it's the the whole point of transcending those boundaries pushing those boundaries even further um not even so much as the pre women or the efforts of pre-aphylite sisterhood but ethnic minorities as well i mean um, I've been doing a lot of work on Rebecca Solomon and like the Solomons as a whole, and that they are from a jewish background and then you've got uh, you've got Fanny Eaton and brian Eaton's efforts with them covering her so a lot has to be said, and a lot a lot more new conversations are coming to are coming forth regarding what is is prayerphlytism on an international scale um with regards to Um, ethnicity with regards to race and racial identity with regards to gender identity and it's just a massive conversation and I think as well just to add to that, the Pre-African Society, especially joining Instagram and the latest posts that Hannah Sply has been very kindly doing for um, the Pre-African Society They've been engaging people with modern day conversations such as, you know, uh, International Women's Day. We had a post for that. Sisterhood Sunday and all of these modern day things that we're incorporating and integrating career flightism with. I think that's where the society is taking the movement. And I'm really excited to see where it goes and where it it takes it further. That's what I'm really
0: excited to see. A fantastic summary of where we think pre-Raphaelitism is heading. Jordan, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very thank much. You. And I think it just remains for me to say, well, thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to find out more information about the pre-Raphaelites and the Pre-Raphaelite Society, please visit our website at wwwpre and consider subscribing to our journal. Thank you.